Hi, my name is Kim Metrison, co-dean of Rutgers Law School in Camden, and this is The Power of Attorney. So this is another one of those episodes where I get to talk to one of our alums who has a terrific story about how he came to us at Rutgers Law School and what he is doing um, with his law degree. So um, Landon Hacker, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. So the way that I usually start this podcast is I say to folks, what's your origin story, right? How is it that you decided to become a lawyer? And for most people, that's a pretty low-key and tame story. But I think for you, we're going to spend a little bit more time uh, on the origin story to sort of figure out how you went from one place to where you are now. So actually, you tell me where you where you want want to start. Where do you think is a good place to start? Oh, man. Uh, how about why I decided to come to law school? All right, or, let's or start. Even like go back to school in the, in the first place. Well, let's, let's talk about this. Why did you stop school in the first instance? Good question. <laughs> and then have to come back to school? Good question. Out of high school, I went to a small school um, on the Eastern Shore of Maryland called Salisbury University. Long story short is I was not prepared to go away to school. Okay. And when I got to school, I, uh, one, first and foremost, did not appreciate the opportunity for a higher education. Mm-hmm. I very much took that for granted. Two, I went to school because my parents told me I had to go to college. Okay. I Were your parents college educated? Is that why they, they were not. Ah, okay. Got it. So my mom, both my parents are, are entrepreneurs. My mom uh, deals in antiques. We spent a lot of uh, Saturday mornings going to yard sales and estate sales. And then she uh, would set up shop at the, the Berlin flea market. She had a little place in downtown Hannafield where she sold antiques. So uh, she was uh, she was a hustler, and okay. uh, we were exposed to that from a, a very young age, and took part in that, and, and went with her everywhere. I have a twin brother as well, so him and I would uh, we would go with my mom everywhere. And okay. when I was I probably about three, my mom got divorced, and then when I was about eight, she remarried, and she remarried my stepfather, who later adopted my brother and I. He was a tile man. He had his own flooring business. Okay. So um, we would also spend weekends doing hard labor and construction. Okay. So from a very early age and throughout my entire upbringing, there was no shortage of uh, opportunity to do work. I would think that because my parents worked so hard to build what they did in life, they very much wanted my brother and I to go to college to probably make life a little bit easier than than the way they had it. I imagine yeah. that's what, I'm not a parent, but I imagine most parents want their ch- children's lives to be easier and better than theirs. Absolutely. And I think that was the push to, to go to college. Okay. So I chose the school furthest away from home because <laughs> not that I had a horrible childhood. My, my parents were very strict. I wanted to go as far away from home as possible. And Salisbury University on the Eastern Shore of Maryland was the school that I got into that was the furthest from home. So that's where I went. When I got there, like I said earlier, I, one, did not appreciate the opportunity for a higher education, and two, I was not prepared to go in and live on my own. So I was uh, on my own at like 17. You know, mm-hmm. I was sent to school at 17. It just probably turned 18, uh, August 10th, and then like school started the following week. Okay. So, um, And I guess your brother didn't go with you. No, my, my brother stayed local. He 
I think he spent a semester in LaSalle and that was it. Like college was not for him. Right. And quite frankly, it was not for me either. Okay. Um, but, you know, I went and uh, I was exposed to a lot of things I was never exposed to in high school. You know, my um, my parents, uh, we didn't really talk about uh, alcohol and drugs in my house. And we weren't allowed to go out to parties, really. Like, my parents weren't, like, overly strict or, like, over overbearing. But, like, we were on the short leash. Yeah. And, and and I'm sure from their perspective, they were, you know, trying to keep you all safe and yes. keep you on the straight and narrow. Yeah. And I suspect the reasoning for that behind my mom's decisions to, to raise us that way may have come a lot from my biological father, who was a drug addict and uh, very involved in all that stuff. And my mother, uh, she's now recovering in recovery as well for, for alcoholism. Okay. So they... Uh, between their life experiences, they probably thought it was best to like keep us as sheltered as possible. But, you know, in hindsight, a little bit of exposure, at least a discussion about things is always good. Just so you're aware of yeah, like what's out there, what's going on and what to look out for. And uh, when I got to Salisbury, I was off to the races, Okay, you know, um, and I was exposed to things I had never been exposed to before that I didn't really know about. And within, uh, I'd say by the end of my first year of college, I had a, a full-blown opiate addiction. Started with with pills and then went to to heroin, and okay. I quickly um, burned every bridge that I had. I failed out of school. Uh, my parents, uh, my mom was in the middle of going through her second divorce. My sophomore year of college, maybe sophomore junior year of college, couldn't come home. Like really had nowhere to go. And uh, just very, very lost in life. Yeah. Um, so that is the short story of why I ceased going to school in the first place. Okay. And after I had failed out of Salisbury, I had really nowhere to go. So I lived in Baltimore for a, for a little bit. Um, I bounced around. I lived with my girlfriend for a little bit. But, you know, the life of a person in active addiction can't really keep relationships, a steady job or or even a place to live for very long. And um, I soon found myself coming back home to, to South Jersey. And uh, this is what I knew was, was the Camden County area. And uh, between the ages of 18 and I guess 24, I just spent them like a lot of time either on the street, in and out of jail, or, or in like rehabs or other kinds of ins- halfway houses or in other institutions as a result of my drug addiction. That's, that's a pretty long time. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, that's a number of years. Yeah. Um, and so what, like, who, who were you in contact with? Like who was sort of, you know, trying to help you get back on the, on the right path? Was, were you talking to your family? No, I really wasn't talking to my family. My family, most of them wanted really nothing to do with me. Um, my parents were in the middle of going through a divorce. I couldn't really reached out to them. My mom was going through her own issues. She was in, she was actively using throughout. I mean, I didn't know this until much later in life, but throughout my entire upbringing, like middle school and high school, she, she had her own issues and problems Mm -hmm. and kept that either under very good control or very closeted from us, which again, I think fueled her desire to keep us more sheltered and like on such a short lease because she knew what she was doing. And my brother had issues to uh he he was using he actually oh by the time i moved back 
home to uh, New Jersey. My brother's already in Florida. Okay. So my brother moved to Florida and he went to, to rehab down there and he, and he lived down there for a little while. And I have family down in Florida, so he stayed there. So my brother was down in Florida. My parents had their problems up here. Um, my family was scattered all over and I really didn't have anybody to turn to for, for help or direction. And if they did give me help, I exhausted it. Like okay. I, I used them dry, either stole from them. I mean, you burn your bridges pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So you were, you were, you were living where? In shelters on the mm -hmm. street, uh, okay. on the beach. I would, um, mainly stay in Atlantic city cause that's, where you can make money, like mm -hmm. all the hustles around Atlantic City, and then you come to Camden to, to cop, and uh, you know you just find somewhere to sleep. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So, so what was the moment where, I mean, you had been in rehab, you know, yeah. maybe more than once. Yeah. Already. And then there, there was a moment where you, you, it, it started to turn. So the turning point in my life for the better was probably the last time I got arrested, which was December 1st, 2011. And that's also mm -hmm. my clean date, the last time I got high. Okay. And by December 1st, 2011, I had multiple charges out of multiple counties, a violation of probation. There was no more six-month, nine-month jail sentences. This is like prison time now. Okay. And uh, I got locked up uh, at the Hamilton Mall for shoplifting and, and possession and um, so I stayed in Elena County for a little bit. And then once uh, I had a violation of probation out of Camden County and I had some stuff out of Burlington County. So they mm -hmm. transferred me back up. And my brother, well, he was my friend as well in high school, but we had a friend who was a lawyer or was just becoming a lawyer at the time. And my brother reached out to him to to help me. And he, one, was not a practicing attorney. I think he was in his last year at law school, but he was working at a firm. And okay. he's working at the firm where I'm still at now. Yeah. And I will tie the whole story in uh, together. So my brother calls our friend from high school, tells him that I need help and I have some issues. He, one not being an attorney, was really doing like wills and estates and trust stuff, couldn't really handle criminal stuff. So he reached out to the partner in his firm, uh, Kimberly Stewart at Madeline Myroth and Miller. And mm -hmm. she was the criminal lawyer uh, in, in our firm. and. Her and, and Brad came to, to visit me in jail and, um, you know, they uh, convinced me to do the, take this drug court program. Uh -huh. and, uh, I had heard of drug court and uh, everyone I know that was on drug court or violated drug court was said it was like, you don't want to take drug court. It's a setup. And, you why, know, why is it a setup? Why, why did they say it was a setup? At first, because it's probation on steroids. I had failed a probation summit for years. Like mm -hmm. if I couldn't do probation, what would make me think I was able to do drug court? You know, probation, yeah. you show up like once every other week or once a month to, to take a urine and you pay your fine, you go on your way. Drug court, you have to show up like three, four times a week. You have to go to counseling, you have to go to meetings. And um, at that moment in time, I was not ready to get clean. Mm -hmm. You know, like I didn't, I really didn't want to, to get clean. As weird as it sounds, like I was comfortable and content with the life that I had. And do you, do you feel like that was because you were just like you couldn't imagine a different life for yourself at that point? Yeah, I at that time I was twenty three or twenty four years old, and 
everyone that I knew in life outside of my family was progressing in life. I mean, my friend helping was already a lawyer and, you know, I felt very behind in life and I, and I, I don't want to curse, but I said, F it. Yeah. This is, this is the life that I made for myself. That's a really young point in life to say, well, this is it, right? Throw up your hand. But drugs became my best friend. And uh, like, I didn't, I really, really didn't want to stop using. And Mm -hmm. I figured I can keep doing this, you know, not being accountable to anyone or, you know, doing what I want to do, how I want to do it. Um, And I truly believe that I could do that for the rest of my life. Wow. Okay. Talk about young and dumb. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, I just had too much at multiple counties to, like, it was just a problem. And um, it was either go away for for a while, Mm -hmm. like five to 10, or Mm -hmm. take the drug court. um, Yeah. And uh, I don't know if she told me this or our friend Brad told me this, but they said, one of the two of them, I remember saying, if you take drug court, and you get on this program, your family will help you. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, wow, you know, maybe this is like my last chance. Yeah. And she explained to me, like, you're going to you're going to die either on the street or in prison. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I came to that realization after like six months of like being sober and having a little bit of clarity and here having a, an opportunity for a fresh start, I just uh, gave myself a chance. Yeah. You know, the the best in a weird way the best part about being at the bottom is there's nowhere to go but up yeah and I certainly didn't yeah. want to even though I wanted to continue to do what I was doing I was not ready to die yeah either Good. on the street or in jail and mm-hmm. um I took drug court so can you can you walk people through I mean I think that folks have you know you say drug court and people have like some sort of sense of what that means and you know people know that it is i guess diversion program is the wrong word for it but it is is it is a diversionary program it's it's exactly that's exactly what it is it's diverting you from prison you still have to plead guilty to your charges to get Mm -hmm. into it it's not for everybody i know my Mm -hmm. lawyer had a fight for me to get in there because they really don't want anybody with any violent offenses so like Mm -hmm. if you have like a robbery charge you know, and there's a lot of different offenses that arise out of drug use. So, for instance, yeah. drug, drug court isn't really for, I know prosecutors will push back, and I know this now because I, I interned with drug court later on in life while I was in law school, but prosecutors will push back on, like, robbery charges, assault charges, and distribution charges. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a lot of people sell drugs to get high. Right. You know, so right. it's not yeah. like they're bona fide drug dealers. They're just selling a little bit to, to get by and... You know, assaults, robberies, all the violent in nature. I mean, you're doing you're doing those things to get hot, to get money. Right. So exactly. there's a lot of charges that could preclude someone from drug court that do arise that are truly drug related in nature. Yeah. The screening process is rigorous and rightfully so. They don't want a bunch of drug dealers and and violent offenders and let alone sexual offenders on drug court mm-hmm. just to escape prison. Right. So I do understand why they have those um, standards and certain charges that you can't get in. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was a lot of work to consolidate a lot of different charges out of three different counties. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the footwork in the process was in place for me to, to plead into drug court. And um, when I pled into drug court, you either do, I got a five-year sentence. 
So that means you stay on drug court for five years. And at the end of the five years, you're done. You've maxed out your sentence, if you will. Uh, You can graduate early. There's um, four phases to drug court. Phase one, you have to stay on for uh, 90 days. And during phase one, you are reporting to court once a week in person. Mm-hmm. And um, when when I was on drug court, you would report every Thursday. You'd have to be there at 9 a.m. And it would take all day because, you know, Burlington, it was Burlington County Drug Court and there was hundreds of people on drug court. Yeah. So yeah. the hundreds of people would sit in in uh, at the time it was Judge Palmer's chambers and they would call you up one by one in front of everybody and you get like a progress report the whole night. So that was a whole day. So when they when they're doing the progress report, is that just you reporting on, you know, here's here are the things I'm doing, these are all the things that I'm doing right? Or is it somebody else who's coming in and saying, Well, here's what I got to say about Landon? Yes. Okay. So before <laughs> they call all of us into the into the, the courtroom. Uh, to be presented to the judge, they have what are called team meetings, mm-hmm. where they sit down, where the judge sits down with all the probation officers, all the counselors at the the, the different inpatient, outpatient uh, centers, and they go through each person and they get progress reports. Mm-hmm. So the judge already knows like what you're doing and if you've messed up. So like yeah. if if you get called up and you know you did something wrong, you're going to jail. Every time you get a sanction on drug court, you start over. So you could be on phase four, and if you mess up, whether it's, you know, picking up a new charge or, like, just forging a, a meeting slip, you're starting all the back on phase one. And when I was on drug court, more people would finish drug court, like, by maxing out their three- or five-year sentence and actually graduating drug court. Mm-hmm. So phase one, you, you would show up once a week in person to report, and then in addition to the one court session a week, you have another reporting uh, session with your PO. And what you do is after nine o'clock, you call a number and they tell you what what groups of people have to come in the next day to give a urine. Got it. So that, you know, to keep everyone on their toes. So it's really random. And sometimes you might get called in twice a week on top of the in-person courting report. And then on phase one, you also have to do your inpatient. I was... Uh, I guess prescribed or sentenced to it was three hours twice a week. It was on Tuesdays and Tuesdays and then Thursday nights. And then also you have to go to three NA or A meetings a week. Okay. Oh, and you have to get a job. In order to move phases, in order to get off phase one, you have to have a job. Once you have all that and you've done that for 90 days, then you can go to phase two, which is um it's all the same stuff as uh phase one except instead of doing your in-court reporting once a week, it's every other week. Okay. Still have the random urine, still the meetings, still the inpatient, do that for six months and maintain mm-hmm. your job. And then uh, once you do all that, then you go to phase three, which is for nine months, minimum of nine months. And instead of uh, coming to court every other week, like in phase two, you go once a month. Okay. And then there's phase four. Uh, by then you're done your counseling. And then it's just uh, one time a month you show up to court reporting and you have to stay there for I believe it's a year so I think okay. that and I did it as like I did my drug court perfectly with no sanctions <laughs> I moved phases like as soon as I possibly could I did everything you could possibly do to to be compliant and perfect and I think I graduated drug court in like two years and two months congratulations thank you what do you um, what do you think allowed you to be, you know, the perfect drug court pupil? 
a lot of help and support from a lot of people. So once I got, once I took drug court, you have to be released to an address and I didn't have an address. Mm-hmm. So uh, I said to my lawyer, I said, I thought you said my, my family was going to help me out. Yeah. You know? And uh, when I got on drug court, I was still homeless. I was actually, I got released, I think under the supervision of my attorney, actually. And they allowed me to go to a church in Mount Holly. And I was living in an attic in a church in Mount Holly for a few weeks, I believe. Mm -hmm. And then my lawyer and my aunt helped me get moved into an Oxford house, which is in Burlington City, which is like a sober living environment. Mm -hmm. So within, I'd say like a month of after being released from jail and then onto drug court, I uh, had a roof over my head and my aunt and my brother were at least talking to me. So I was like very grateful for that. Yeah. You know, and I understood that if I messed up drug court, like this is it. Like I didn't want to go to prison for for five years or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, so I took it very seriously. And after I'd say a couple months of job searching and being unsuccessful in that, Kimberly Stewart actually hooked me up with a job at her firm being a mail clerk. You know, I was just very grateful and appreciative for the opportunity to live in the Oxford house and to have that mail clerk job. And as weird as it sounds, it gave me a lot of purpose in life. And sure. it made me feel really, really good that uh, someone was helping me out, a complete stranger, and you know, gave me an opportunity to change my life. Yeah. And that meant a lot to me. I'm sure it did. So you, you did drug court perfectly. And then finished drug court in 2014. Yeah. And then what was, like, what did you see in front of you once you were done with drug court? So I was working in a law firm all throughout drug court. And I was exposed to people that, uh, they had the ability to help people. Yeah. Whether they actually did or not, there was an opportunity for them to do that. Mm -hmm. And I really, really wanted to give back to, to people that were in my position and, after my life experiences the previous five years, like I understood that the opportunities that I was given are not given to 99% of the people. Mm-hmm. Like the opportunity to get into an Oxford house without having a job, the opportunity to be a mail clerk at a, at a law firm with a jacket as, as long as my arm and without any bona fide or good employment history. You know, it was those little things that that really turned my life around that I understand that most people don't ever have that opportunity to do. Yeah. So now you're, you know, you've been, uh, at this point, you had been clean for over two years. You had been just killing it in drug court. You had a job, you, you had a place where you were living. And now you're at this point where, you know, you've seen these lawyers, they're doing good things. Well, some of them are doing good things. And certainly you can imagine that all of them have the ability um, to do good things. And then, you know, one day you decided that's, that's who I want to be. Yes. I figured that was the best way I could give back in the most powerful and impactful way that I could possibly help my people was mm-hmm. by becoming a lawyer and representing these individuals who are often not even, I mean, now they give drug court to a lot more people, but back mm-hmm. then, like you had to fight to get into drug court. Yeah. I mean, drug court was not given to everybody and they're just like with any practice of area, there are good lawyers and bad lawyers. And it was my experience that most lawyers that were helping these individuals were not the best lawyer. 
Right. Um, or they could have done something different or better. Right. And I don't think anybody should ever not be afforded the, the best representation possible. So yeah. I wanted to go back to school and um, that was a lot of hoops to jump through because I had failed out and I'd actually owed Salisbury a lot of money. I found uh, out they won't release your transcripts until like you pay off all your stuff. So after I got those issues resolved, um, I was able to go to BCC. Also, I by then they weren't interviewing people to come to college. And um, I knew I had a lot of explaining to do to get back into school. And Rutgers said they were not conducting interviews that I can apply online, which you know, when I applied to Salzburg, it was not done online. Like I mailed yeah. an actual application. I also missed out on five to six years of technology. So yeah. I was not very computer literate or anything of the sort. So I had to go to BCC to, uh, you know, prove to Rutgers that I'm a changed person, mm -hmm. um, that I can get good grades. And uh, I've been kicked off Rutgers campus in Camden. Mm, yeah. So uh, they were not quick to, to give me an opportunity to come back. Sure. So, and rightfully so. So I did some classes at BCC. I got all A's in those classes. And then I was able to take those grades and then apply for Rutgers and uh, show them I'm a, I'm a changed man. I'm here to take this seriously. And uh, Great. Thank God they they afforded me the opportunity. So I got I got into Rutgers and I finished. Uh, I think I was there for two and a half years, okay. like five five six semesters maybe. Was it was it strange to be back in school? It it was a little bit, you know, like those were my stomping grounds where I used yeah. to run, and um, I was not the nicest person to be around then, and it was just a very surreal feeling to be invited back there. And mm -hmm. uh, to to just have that like gift of like a fresh start. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you came back as a as a different person in in like significant ways. Yeah, yeah. So I uh, I did my undergrad at Rutgers, and uh, you know the whole plan was to to go to BCC, get get some good grades, get into Rutgers, get straight A's in Rutgers as well, because I'm I knew the only shot I had to get into law school with my past was that if I can somehow make up for this horrible checkered past was with like glaring glowing perfect grades like yeah. in my mind i was like if i get a 4.0 how can they say no right you know like they still the could have said no i know but in my <laughs> mind I was like there's no way you know yeah. um so i i did that i i i worked worked really hard and i got straight a's at both bcc and Rutgers, and uh i took the lsat and uh I got a 152, which was like the bare minimum average <laughs> score to get into law school. And, uh, you know, I was told you should take it again uh, just to try and do better. So I took it again. I got a 152 again. Uh, so I got the same score twice. So I was like, this is a sign. Like, this is, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm going to I'm going to try and explain myself as best as possible in my personal statement. By then I had, uh, I guess, at least five years working at a law firm. Plus my good grades, and a compel a really compelling personal story, right? I mean, on one hand, there's the concern of, you know, does this person fall back into a, a life of addiction or you know substance use? But on the other hand, it's like here's a person who clearly has shown himself to be able to pull himself out of really difficult situations, and not just pull himself out, but do so 
incredibly successfully. Yeah, thank you. So, and, uh, and I did well in law school, too. So, so you, you knew you wanted to be a lawyer, right? You wanted to go to law school. And you said when you, when you came back to campus to go to undergrad that it was, you know, that transition was a little bit jarring. Very weird. Yeah. What was it like once you started, once you started law school? I mean, at that point, did you feel, you know, pretty settled into the, the new life you had built for yourself? Or was it still, mm-hmm. was there a lot of transition that was involved in, in law school as well? Just the adjustment of the the academic world was an adjustment going from what you do in undergrad to be evaluated and the workload. And I'm not saying undergrad was easy by any means, but I mean, it's certainly not law school. Yeah, it's um, different. So yeah. academically, it was an adjustment, but lifestyle, like I was very comfortable with, with my new life. And I just I just went to class, did my yeah. work, went to class and left. I didn't really participate in... Um, like the mock trial, I really didn't have time either. Like I was working full time during the mm-hmm. day. So like my classes were six to 10 at night, but I didn't really get involved. I just wanted to, like, I was there for a very specific reason Yeah. to, to become a lawyer. And I know exactly what kind of lawyer I wanted to be a public defender, or at least doing criminal defense, working people, working with people with substance abuse issues or addiction issues. I had already like paved my way to like getting into that. So I just mm-hmm. like stayed focused, did what I had to do, got in and got out. Got it. All right. So you graduated in 20, right? Yeah, just this past May. Yeah. So you're you're a very recent law school grad um, yep. and graduated during, you know, one of the worst years that somebody could be not... in law school. <laughs> so it was actually not that bad because by the time the world changed, we were almost done our my last semester. Yeah, so, that's like, true. Yeah, you but know, you, then you had to do the bar exam, though. Yeah, so that that was challenging because you know you would I started studying immediately. Yeah, you know as soon as I was done school, and then like it kept getting postponed, and yeah. I don't have a great memory. Like I've done mm-hmm. a lot of damage to myself, so I know like the night before an exam, like I have, and the the morning of, like I'm rereading everything to try and like remember as much stuff as possible. So. My fear was like, no matter how hard I studied, like I would just have to keep like repeating the same thing over and over again. And uh, it worked. Like yeah. That, so. Excellent. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about your nonprofit. So a few years after like being clean, I started to get involved and give back in as many ways as possible. One of those, one of the ways that I give back is I volunteer at the shelters that I used to stay at. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly the one in Atlantic City. And one uh, Thanksgiving, I was, I was there volunteering and I, and I met another volunteer and uh, she said something to me that was very meaningful and powerful. She goes, you know, for, for such nice people here, it doesn't seem like they do anything to get people out. And mm. I, said, I said, you're absolutely right about that. And at the time, you know, I knew the people that, that work there and what it was like there. And in my mind, it was, uh, you know, you have to fill the beds to get funding, mm-hmm. you know? So what, what is the incentive for a homeless shelter who's, who's either privately or publicly funded to get people out if their funding is based on the amount of people who come in? Right, right. And I think that's the harsh reality for a lot of facilities and institutions that are dealing with either homelessness issues or addiction issues. You know, I didn't get out of the shelter willingly or by help from anybody in a shelter. I mean, I, I went through the the judicial system, the mm-hmm. legal system, and uh, we kind of put our heads together and we came up with a plan to to help the people in the shelter. And it, it first started out with us. 
providing uh, assistance with getting jobs and finding permanent housing outside the shelter. Mm-hmm. So she would do these uh, like workshop clinics. The more we were trying to help people get jobs and find permanent housing, we realized everybody had legal issues mm-hmm. that must be resolved before any one of those two things can happen. Yeah. I'm not talking about like hardcore legal issues. I'm talking about the most minuscule things that will keep someone stuck in a shelter for the rest of their life, mm-hmm. all the way down to not having a state ID. Yeah. You know, you can't do anything without an ID. And if you don't have yep. $35 to, to get an ID or to get to the D, like transportation, I mean, there's just a slew of reasons why someone is unable to get just a simple ID. Yeah. So that's where we started. And, you know... If you don't have a social security card, can't get an ID. If you don't have either one of those two. Birth certificate. So that's what we started doing. We started requesting birth certificates from all these different states that like from wherever people were from, we would get that birth certificate. We would write a letter to them at, with their address at the shelter. They would take their birth certificate and that letter would go to social services building, get a social security card. And now they have their birth certificate, a letter, a social security card, and then they can take all that and go get a state ID from the DMV. Yeah. So we either drive them or get get them a bus pass so they can get there. And now that they have a state ID, they can apply for government benefits if they needed them or uh, or or a job. Things just little things like that. Yeah. You know, that's a, that is such a critical point, and I think it's a piece that a lot of people just don't realize. Right, that when people don't have these what seem like really small things, right? I mean, I've, I've had a driver's license since I was 16 years old. You know, things that seem like really small things, but if you don't have them and you don't have a sort of understanding of the process that's required to get these things, you can just get, you know, stuck in a place. And it's not about laziness or, you know, a desire to stay stuck. It's like, I don't, you know, I don't know how to navigate these systems and who's going to help me navigate them. And the people at the shelter, their job is not to come up with $35 and drive you to the DMV to go get you a state ID. Right. Their job is to provide you with a safe place to stay. Once the, we were calling them like employment clinics and housing clinics and uh, public benefits clinics where we would just show up, we would have other volunteers come and we would just help people with their paperwork or like with transportation or like getting the ball going. Yeah. And then um, I uh, went back to the office one day. I would do this like once a week. And I told the lawyer who helped me, who was a partner at the firm, I said, you know, like all these people have legal issues. Can we help them? And uh, she went all in like immediately. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was it was a beautiful thing because um, one of the things that I do on a daily basis, I I try and find lawyers to that will volunteer their time to go down to these shelters and take on pro bono cases. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily have to take on the case and enter an appearance and all that. You can refer them to the public defender's office if, if you really don't want to get involved, but at least like give a consultation and let them know like what's what, where to go. A lot of people's legal issues in these places can be resolved with a phone call. Yeah. You know, like getting a, a warrant lifted, you know, rescheduling a court appearance for someone, calling and finding out how much they owe and where they owe it yeah. to. And, I don't call it really legal work. It's just getting information. Yeah. One of the, one of the things that we, um, because you know, we have this medical legal partnership with um, the Addiction Medicine Clinic at Cooper and with Canada Coalition of Healthcare Providers. 
And, and one of the things that we were also struck by was how many warrants people would have in different places, as you were saying earlier. And then if you're trying to deal with all of them and you don't know where they are and you don't know when you're supposed to be in court because they're sending you notices to an address where you don't live anymore. And it's just this very complicated system that in some ways is, is set up for people to fail, right? Which is really, which is incredibly frustrating. Yeah. So. That's what we do. We try and help people that are stuck in that in that situation. I mean, I was there and I understand yeah. what it feels like to be stuck there and not literally have no idea what to do or how to do or who to even yeah. call for help. Tell tell us the name of the name of your of your organization. It's called Oncidium. O N C I D I U M. It's after a flower. I didn't pick the name. My partner picked the name. She okay. I said, You pick the name and I'll I'll pick uh the slogan. And it was people helping people. So it was like a give and take. And to be honest with you, I really did not care what it was called. All I cared about was that we were helping people. And uh, that's what we do. So, you know, it's, I didn't realize that uh, starting a nonprofit is like a startup business. Uh, Yep. Yep. And uh, maybe doing that at the same time of trying to get into law school and then doing law school at the same time. uh, It was really, really difficult, but I'm just glad to be done law school so I can really devote more time and energy to this so this nonprofit, you know, we're, we're only in a couple shelters and I'd like to expand our footprint and um, it just takes a lot of effort. And- yeah, absolutely. And I want to, I want to just reiterate what you said before, which is that you, um, you like to have attorneys, pro bono attorneys come in and help people out. So if, yes. you know, if folks, if folks are looking for a way to use their law degree outside of their job, here we go. Yeah. Tons of work for <laughs> Excellent. So I did, I did want to talk to you about the sort of larger systemic issues, you know, that come out in your story and that, you know, if we, if you're listening to the right podcasts or reading the right, you know, articles, you know, that there's, there are so many complications that are involved here. And one of those is using criminal justice as a way to deal with people who have addiction or substance use disorders. And on one hand, you know, I listen to your story and I say, well, you know, drug court is what got Landon out and got him into this this space where he's able to be so successful. But at the same time, you know, I'm thinking to myself, but was that the best way to, to make that happen? Was that the only way to make that happen? So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit, particularly as somebody who now has a law degree, who can be very thoughtful about, you know, what lawyers do and how our legal system works. Drug court is great, but is it is it the best way to deal with people who are struggling with addiction? Right. So drug court certainly is not for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, Drug court should be, in my opinion, should be a last resort option. I mean, I guess it really depends on what you get picked up and where your charges are. But if you're a first time offender, I don't think drug court is is appropriate. Unless the individual says, I have a drug problem. I have no idea how to help myself. I want drug court. And for that individual, I think drug court is a gift from God is the mm-hmm. best thing you can possibly do because in that situation, what drug court can do that no other diversionary program can do is provide you with treatment mm-hmm. for free. If you need to go away to a detox and then to a rehab and to a halfway house for three or six months, drug court will place you there and the state will pay for it. So for individuals that truly need that kind of help, I think drug court is is the best option. But again, it should be a last resort option. Like you should exhaust all avenues before you do that. Cause it's, 
it's probation on steroids. You know, mm-hmm. drug court is for people who have violated probation or parole or, you know, that there this is the their last chance before a lengthy prison sentence. More so than a diversionary program is avoiding the system altogether. Right. Um, not even having someone plead out to to, to anything, really. Yeah. Um, and not in a form of PTI. I mean avoiding the system altogether. I'm not a police officer and I'm not a prosecutor, but I imagine it would be difficult to pick someone up who's committed a crime, not charge them with anything, and instead send them to a rehab. And mm-hmm. I know that that sounds like a difficult and maybe wild or crazy thing to do, but I think that might be the best case for 99% of drug addicts. And I uh, was given the opportunity to meet with the AG uh, a few years ago, and one of his initiatives that he's doing is a program like that, which I thought was absolutely remarkable. And I know they're doing in Burlington County, where if you get picked up uh, for a drug-related crime, they're not charging you. They're, Mm -hmm. They're placing you in a program. And I think that is the best part. And obviously, there will be those who take advantage of that system and do things knowing, like, I'm never going to get charged. So there has to be some kind of boundary or rule of, you know, maybe a three strike and you're going to get charged kind of system. But we're talking about the majority of of violators are, it's petty crimes. They're They're not violent in nature. They're not sexual in nature. They're truly drug related, whether it's possession or theft. And, you know, they need medical treatment. Not right. not judicial punishment. Right, um, right. And I think if if there are more programs like that that will place you into treatment rather than charging you initially, I don't think first-time offenders and petty criminals that are strictly drug-related need to be thrown into the judicial system. And I know that's like a very radical and concept to, to grasp and practically speaking may not be the best, but you know, I have no doubt with all the great minds at work, they can make it happen if they really wanted to. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And I think that we are at a point where, you know, we're having a lot of great conversations about our criminal justice system, policing, you know, all all of these different things. And it is a moment where, and we've got these progressive prosecutors or, you know, progressive AGs in our case. So it is kind of a nice moment for people to be thinking, first of all, it's incredibly expensive, right, to to arrest people and to keep them in prison or in jail. If the, if the goal is to actually get people clean and to help them, you know, live live their life, then putting people in jail and prison is is probably not the best way uh, to make that happen. So hopefully, we'll see, you know, we'll see some changes there in the in the years to come. It's hard. I mean, look, if there was easy answers to to these problems or or questions like there would there would be no issues, but yeah, uh, yeah, so, and you're always going to have people that take advantage of the system. Sure. And, um, so everything really needs to be done on a case by case basis, and uh, you know I think we're trending in the right direction. Like for yeah. one, the expungement aspect, like they just mm-hmm. recently changed the expungement laws a couple years ago. So yeah. now when you graduate drug court, you get an expungement of your mm-hmm. entire record, not with just what you pled into drug court with, but everything prior to that can be expunged, yeah. obviously. That wasn't around when I graduated, but we were grandfathered in, and I actually did my own uh, And that's uh, one of That's awesome. Like, yeah. Well, you know, I was, it was my senior year of law school, and mm-hmm. uh, I knew, like, I I was coming up on, like, applying to sit for the bar and, and the whole nine, and, you know, a lot of people I deal with through my nonprofit and charity work, 
they want expungements. And, you know, yeah. I need to learn how to do that myself before I do it for someone else. So I thought there was no better person to learn on than myself. So I did my yeah. own expungement um, under the drug court statute and did all the paperwork and gathered all the information. And it took like nine or 10 months, but it finally went through and I got my order. Yeah, I was going to um, say, how did you, you find the process? Uh, extremely frustrating and difficult. I mean, look, there are brilliant people out there. And if you can do it by yourself, per se, God bless you. But it is not something mm-hmm. that should be uh, taken lightly. Because if you mess one thing up, like that's, yeah. you get one bite at the apple. Like if you miss something, usually the prosecutor will tell you if you miss something. But, you know, sometimes they don't. And uh, you want to make sure when you do your expungement, yeah. you, do it, you do it right. And the issue with expungements for people like myself is, You've done so much for so many years at, in so many different places. It may be hard for you to even remember where you've been arrested, when you've been arrested. So how do you even wow. go about open right. requesting all the court records to get all the information you have to put in your expungement application? Because you have to put the summons and complaint number, the right. initial charge what you pled out to, the date. Like if you have like 10, 15 yeah. things, it's a daunting task. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, we have all of you know the new marijuana law and what the expungements are going to look like under that law. That changes um, the game too. Yeah. 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 So interesting time. It's it's tough, and you know the public defender to put all that on the public defender's office. It's yeah. difficult. You know, prosecute the prosecutor's office should really work with the public defender's office to to providing the public defender with the proper jacket. To, to do the expungement application properly so it doesn't get rejected and then you get your date adjourned for three or four months and yeah it was you a- got it done yeah you got it done yeah. and then so one thing that i want to make sure that we mention because I've, I've i've consumed a lot of your time today i'm um, in no rush i can talk to you for hours all right <laughs> one of the things that i want to mention is that in in what i think is pretty rare you did your swearing in ceremony with the Chief Justice yeah. of the New Jersey Supreme Court, what, yeah. what was that like? I'm friendly with some people at the at the AOC from like working with drug court and like I try and give back. Is like anybody who calls me or emails me and tells me they want me to like help them with something or come in and speak to their drug court, I never say no to anything. Mm-hmm. So I've um, I've had the opportunity to meet a lot of people in the the courts and uh, Peter McAleer, the director of communications called me and said the the chief justice heard you you passed the bar and he would like to swear you in and uh it's just truly an honor you don't say that to something like that and yeah yeah so i actually wanted to give the honor to uh my lawyer who helped me kimberly stewart uh, uh yeah you know, and i called her and i said uh i'm very sorry but <laughs> the chief justice asked if he could swear me because you don't say no said, yeah <laughs> i think that's right i think yeah. that's accurate yeah it was it was really nice and it was really meaningful and just every day is surreal for me. The fact, like, I am living the dream. So it's just, everything's just amazing. Well, I feel like that's such a lovely place to stop. So I'm not going to ask more questions. What I will say, though, is, you know, that, that your story obviously is, is an amazing story. It's an amazing, you know, sort of tale of triumph, which is really terrific. And and I think what I what I like the most about it is that, what you have taken from your experience is how do I give this back, right? How do I, you know, 
take what has happened to me and the things that I've been able to do. And in some ways, the luck you've had, right? I mean, you sort of talked about that, how some things just, you know, fell into place quite nicely for you, you know, being able to try to do something similar for, for the people who come behind you, which I think is, you know, I think I, I have said many, many times before, and I'll continue to say this, that the highest purpose of a law degree is to do justice. Um, and, and that's the work that you're doing. So Thank you. And I'm so glad that you get to do it with a Rutgers law degree. I think it's very, I like want to be very, very clear about this, that I am not unique in the sense that I'm the only one with disability or potential. Mm. I mean, Mm -hmm. there are, I know dozens and dozens of people, and I know there are thousands of people in New Jersey and millions of people across America that are similarly situated as I was 10 years ago that have mm-hmm. the same capability and same potential. And they just need to be guided a, just a little bit and given an opportunity. Yeah. And that's my goal in life is to give that guidance and provide those opportunities to those who don't have that. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I, I hope uh, there are dozens of other drug court graduates that, that, that become lawyers and, and change the, change the system. There's no parallel to to a lawyer who's been in this client's shoes helping that client. Yeah. And I think if we have more lawyers that can, if not necessarily able to relate from based on life experiences, but at least empathize. Yes, right. Put themselves in the position of their client or just think about if they have children, how would they want their child to be treated? Yeah. On both sides of the aisle, on mm-hmm. both from a defender's perspective and a prosecution perspective. Yeah. And when you have that kind of dynamic going, then we can really, really, really help a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope, as I said, you know, I hope that we are in in a space where there really can be significant systemic change, and it feels like we yeah. are in that space. And you know, and I think that we're lucky. You know, New Jersey is pretty, you know, left leaning, which is which is helpful. So hopefully, you know, we can be sort of a um, an example potentially for some other things. So, you know, one of the things that I like about, about your story, so, so it's one of the things that I really like. And then one of the things that I think is really challenging is that there are lots of people who would look at you, you know, you're, you're white, you're a man, you've got this, you know, very nice appearance. And so there are people who would look at you and say, well, of course we wanted to give this guy a second chance. Right. But all those other people, you know, right. we should just leave them where they are. That's right. Yeah. And that's my whole purpose in life is to change that. Yeah. And and I'm grateful for the opportunities that I was given, but everybody should get the same opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to leave it there. This has been such a great conversation. I'm so appreciative that you, that you took the time. And I'm just so looking forward to what you're going to do with your law degree. Because I think you're, you know, you're one of those people who is going to look back and be able to say that's those are the ways in which I changed the world. And that's pretty amazing. So I hope so. I just want to help. I just want to help one person. If I can help one person, I'm good. I think you'll help a lot more than one person. I hope so. so. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Landon. Thank you guys very much for having me. It's been an honor and a pleasure. The Power of Attorney is produced by Rutgers Law School. With two locations, minutes from Philadelphia and New York City, Rutgers Law offers the prestige and reputation of a large, nationally known university with a personal small campus experience. Learn more by visiting law.rutgers.edu.